0: So the first Christians, I mean, let's think about them. Or the first Christians, excuse me, the first people. Let's think about them. So one of the things that we learned is that they went around naked. Now, going around naked is a pretty abnormal thing, except for a small portion of our population. So we all have these people in our lives or in our close, um, you know, circumference around us and they, I say it's a small portion of the population, and they are rather small people, right? So who do we know that kind of would freely run around naked? Yeah, children, right? So certainly from infancy up through toddlers, and even early childhood, you know, four, five, six, like go put some clothes on. Like, Why do I need clothes on? Um, There's this sense of innocence, right? So that uh, this awareness that these first humans are coming to about their, about their nudity is something that we all know because we've kind of all grown up. And let's also think about this, this tree that they're supposedly eat, kind of eating from. So scripture refers to it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now apparently there are certain consequences that you will have if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die. And we'll talk more about some of those other consequences that come along with it. But there would be a positive consequence from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A positive consequence. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what would you gain? You would gain the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's, That's what you would get from kind of eating that fruit. Now this begs a question. If they had not yet eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what would they not yet know? Yeah, they would not yet know the difference between good and evil or between right and wrong. Now there's also another uh, part of our population who kind of run around naked who have not yet learned right from wrong, right? Also our children, our, especially our youngest children. So Irenaeus imagined the first humans as innocent, not as perfect, but out of their innocence, right, grew this um, kind of uh, emerging adulthood, this emerging humanity, where they kind of learned right from wrong. And when learning right from wrong, wrong, part of what they realized is that in their human condition, they often would choose wrong and not right. And so, for therefore would need a redeemer, therefore would need a forgiver. They would need a father, a mother, a parent to guide them and to to correct them. So I want us to maybe imagine the fall and God's responses to the fall, not as perfect people who somehow made a mistake that God had to punish and therefore correct, in which case Jesus becomes a reaction to the human mistake but rather imagine it as a good father who created, and as the creation grew, the creation needed discipline. It needed structure. It needed love. So you might imagine the consequences of the fall now as discipline rather than as punishment, or as, as correction wh- rather than simply judgment. In which case then, the role of Jesus then becomes all the more significant. So we can often, and 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 uh, scholars and ministers uh, often had, often have compared the life of Jesus to the life of Israel, right? So Israel, it's it's down into captivity in Egypt, and we know the story that in order to avoid um, Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, Mary and Joseph and Jesus kind of go down into Egypt. Then the uh, through Moses and his ministry, God delivers them out of Egypt. Right After the death of Archelaus, they come out of Egypt. Um, Israel kind of goes through the Red Sea. The next story you see in Matthew's gospel about Jesus is he's being baptized in the Jordan. The, Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. After their 40 years in the wilderness, they, they come into the promised land, and it's split up between 12 tribes. After his 40 days in the wilderness, he comes back into the promised land, and he calls 12 disciples. I mean, it seems um, very unlikely that this could be coincidental uh, because it parallels so much. And then Matthew will go on to kind of compare Jesus to Moses. Uh, Moses is always going up on the mountain. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is always on the mountain. And then he's often quoting Moses when he's there. You have heard it said, and he quotes Moses from his mountain, but I say to you. But when the lectionary Places Matthew 4 in relationship to Genesis which Craig read for us and Romans which says that uh, Christ is the last Adam and though through Adam uh, sin has affected humanity and not just humanity but creation now through Christ the last Adam uh, the forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration is going to affect humanity not just humanity but creation. So this, this is very, very interesting to me. So as Christ kind of goes out into the wilderness, now as the last Adam, not just simply to be tested to see whether or not he's up to the job, but to, to kind of conquer, to conquer temptation, to kind of overcome it, to, to be for us what we couldn't be for ourselves in much the same way that Jesus is for Israel what Israel couldn't be for itself. So if Israel was supposed to be this kind of light to the world and failed, now Jesus is the light to the world and succeeds. If the first Adam was to be this kind of, um, kind of uh, father of, of the species, now this second Adam comes and redeems and moves and behaves in ways that, that only he can, which I think is important for us because uh, for those of you who kind of committed to Lent this year or have in the past, you have found yourself sometimes not quite succeeding, right? So any confessions uh, today? Sunday morning confessions. We need to turn the lights on bright, set up a confessional booth. You, You gave up something for Lent and then kind of forgetting about it, you find yourself drinking that latte. Oh! Gave that up for what Or putting in that piece of chocolate. Oh man, I gave that up for it. No? Am I the only one who's ever broken their limb? A <laughs> bunch of pious people. <laughs> you found your you have known that there's something that was right to do and you found yourself not doing it. Or you know that there's something wrong to do and you find yourself doing it anyway. Uh, Paul will talk about this in, in Romans 7. You know, this kind of struggle. And, uh, and scholars debate, God love us, um, we'll debate so hard about that. Is that the pre-conversion Paul or the post-conversion Paul? And I want to say yes. Yes, it's the pre-conversion Paul. And yes, it's the post-conversion Paul too. Right? That that's, We don't become perfect. That's not, even, that's, that's not even the goal in some ways. Right? It's just to become human and to become human in such a way that we can participate with the humanity of Christ. So as we said earlier, this is Palm Sunday. This celebrates Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being announced and celebrated as the coming Messiah. But here's the kicker. It wasn't the Messiah that they had hoped for, at least not exactly. It wasn't the Messiah that they expected. He wasn't militant enough, right? He could have rode in on a white horse with some armor on, but instead, he rides in on a donkey. Give me a break. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of financial or kind of a government enough, right? It just it didn't fulfill. It wasn't even religious enough, right? It didn't fulfill their kind of expectations. But let's, let's think about these temptations of Jesus in light of the fact that he understands himself having come just from his baptism where God has said, this is my beloved son in whom, whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit has descended on him. He has been anointed. He has, in a way, become the Messiah. Like we might speak of Jesus as being born, both fully human and fully divine. But he becomes the Messiah. To be the Messiah is to be anointed, uh, to be king. And that didn't, that didn't happen at his birth. Um, uh, Again, it's debatable. He gets anointed a couple of different places. But certainly at his baptism, you see this kind of spiritual anointing of the Spirit descending on Christ. And now he has this mantle upon him to do this thing. And it's only later after that, right, that they confess or profess that he is the Christ. So let's just look at this, this first temptation. Turning uh, bread into uh, stone. Excuse me. Huh. Turning stones into bread, right? Which, of course, is not something any of us have ever been tempted to do, uh, primarily because we do not have the ability to do it. But what, what I love about it, and it's a, it's a small detail in Matthew's gospel that we don't find in Luke's, is that it's not turned this stone into a piece of bread as though this one man is hungry and just wants to eat. It's turned these stones into loaves of bread, right, all of this bread in the rockiest of countries. And we've, um, we've expressed this as we've talked about the wilderness or the desert and what that would have meant like uh, in the Middle East uh, for Jesus or for Moses um, uh, or for Elijah and the various sermons that we've talked about in the way of the wilderness. We have this graphic, the way of the wilderness, that looks like New Mexico or Arizona or Utah or Nevada. These are rocky places, I mean, it's like rock on top of rock on top of rock. Like the mountains are rock and the ground's rocky and there's kind of rocks everywhere. And this is the same uh, place that Jesus would have been tempted to turn these stones, these rocks, like all of these rocks into bread. And of course, if you turned all of these stones into bread, who could you feed? Well, you could feed the whole country. In fact, perhaps you could even feed the whole world. And so herein lies then the temptation, right, to, to um, jump ahead, to kind of circumvent the process, to, to feed uh, the multitude. Because it's interesting, you know, later in the Gospels, um, Jesus will feed the multitude. So why is it when he's feeding the 5,000, that's a good thing that we all celebrate, but when he's going to be turning these stones into bread, that's a bad thing that he has to avoid. I mean, it seems like the, the outcome would have been the same either way. We end up with from no bread to lots of bread, so people go hungry to people eat, right? So people eating, that's the good thing, right? People going hungry, that's the bad thing. So what's the difference between the temptation in Matthew 4 and the feeding the 5,000 later? Does Jesus fall to the temptation? He's like, man, I can't, I can't wait any longer, man. These people are really hungry. I got to go ahead and do this. So... What I think is going on there is that the temptation is to kind of do it himself, right? To just get it done. And that response is, and this is, this is really interesting because this goes back to a service we had a few weeks ago when we talked about bread and water in the wilderness. His response quotes the story of the man in the wilderness. that as a person does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we're going to rely on God. This is not something that we simply do. So if you have fallen in your Lenten exercises or if you've ever found yourself like Paul not doing what you know is right or doing what you know is wrong, then take heart because it's not a matter of just what you can do. It's a matter of what Christ does. And as Christ does it, We, as the people of Christ, as the body of Christ, participate in it. Now, it is participation, right? It's not spectation. That is, we're not just spectators of what Christ has done. We don't just sit and think, oh, yes, that's great that Christ did that for me or for us. We are called to participate in it, to behave like him. But it's not our own participation that sanctifies us or saves us or forgives us. It's the work of Christ that does that. Um, uh, have you ever been, uh, for those of you who are parents, have you ever been trying to work on something and your kids wanted to help you? It's like, uh, <laughs> or have you ever like, shown up to a second Saturday and uh, you're, you're like a, you know, a contractor and you got all these volunteers wanting to do something? I mean, it, it actually would slow us down, Right? Uh, our children don't necessarily help us finish the job faster. And all due respect to our volunteers, so sometimes they don't necessarily have the best skill set, as, as maybe some of, some of us in the group, right, that can just kind of knock the job out. But the, the point is not just having the experts do it or having the, the one representative get it done. But the point is, is that in the process of participation, right, that we get to join in. And this is exactly what I think is is going on in the case of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and how now we get to participate in it. Uh, The second temptation is interesting, too, because it's kind of the inverse of the first. So the first one is, hey, you can just get this done, right? Do it yourself. You're the Messiah. Feed these people. What are you waiting on? And he says, no, not, uh, you know, we should not live by bread alone. Then he says, all right, you're going to rely on God? Well, then let's rely on God. And he takes Jesus. Jesus is now no longer in the wilderness. When we get to the second temptation, Jesus has, has come back into the city. Uh, he's at the temple. And, and the comment is, you know, why don't you throw yourself down? It's very interesting because in this temptation, and this is key, folks, in this temptation, the tempter quotes Scripture as a part of the temptation. Quote, Psalm 91. For those of you who were Christians in the 1980s and 90s, that was a very popular evangelical psalm. We love that one. You know, you are my hiding place. You always fill my life with joy and deliverance. I'm making up that song now. I don't think that's how the words went at all. But if you could at least kind of catch the tune. How many of you remember You Are My Hiding Place we sang? Yeah? Based on Psalm 91. So we love that psalm. We love that song. And what's Satan doing quoting it? Listen, sometimes people want to, I'll, I'll suggest something and they'll say, well, is there a scripture for that? And I'm like, wait a minute. I can give you a scripture for whatever you want. Satan gave Jesus the scripture for why he should attempt suicide. Just because you can come up with some passage of Scripture that you think might apply doesn't necessarily mean it does, right? Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. You need to be a worker, one who labors in word and truth, rightly dividing the Word of God. If Paul wants Timothy to rightly divide the Word of God, that suggests that it is possible to wrongly divide the Word of God. And I would say Satan's use of Psalm 91 is a case in point of wrongly dividing the word of God. This is not what we should do, right? We always want to kind of uh, set out the fleece. I don't know if you know this. I'm really uh, letting you in onto my, my background here. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have this passage out of Judges, and uh, we think we can kind of test, test God somehow. Um, and we think, well, it's in the Bible, you know. Uh, maybe I can, you know, I saw it there. Maybe I can try that. So, so what are we supposed to do here? We know we're not quite sure what God wants us to do. Well, we can figure it out. Um, Bartow Highway's pretty busy. What about South Florida Avenue? I mean, I don't know how I'm supposed to drive on that road anyway. It always feels like if there's another car next to me, I'm on the sidewalk. <laughs> right? So I, I've never actually put my life at risk and tried to walk down that section of South Florida. Right? But if you want to know whether or not God wants you uh, to do something or not, why don't you just go down there? Step out in the road. We'll find out. (laughs) If God wants you to to go forward, then somehow you'll miraculously live. And if not, then you'll be with the Lord. (laughs) Cast yourself down. He has given his angels charge over you, lest you uh, dash your foot against the stone, against the rocks. Yeah, uh, it wasn't that he misquoted Scripture. He quoted it correctly. It's that he's misinterpreted. He's misapplied Scripture. To which Jesus' response is, uh, Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. So on the one hand, this is not do-it-yourself. And on the other hand, this is not just total presumption on God. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do, and we'll just kind of wait. That sense of fatalism is not a part of kind of biblical Christianity. Uh, The last one, of course, is an interesting one. Um, I'll give you all these things. I'll, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You want to be king of kings and lord of lords? We can get to it right now. Bow down, worship me, and it's all yours. Which is interesting, right? I mean, as, as to who we understand Jesus is, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why would, why would he bow down to Satan? How could that in any way be a test or a temptation on the part of Christ? Unless somehow in some real sense, there is this way in which um, the accuser is kind of rampant that the kingdom of the world is not yet the kingdom of our God. We see in Revelation 11, at the last trumpet, the last trumpet blows and the kingdom of heaven descends and the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ for he has taken his great power and begun to reign. And that seems to be futuristic. We have have not yet reached the last trumpet. Or we get it in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why are we praying for that? Is that not already a reality? In what way are we between the already and the not yet, between the, the promise of the kingdom, the nearness of the kingdom, and the consummation of the kingdom? And who in the world is in charge of this place? Because it looks like a mess. At one point Jesus says we must depart for the ruler of this age is coming. Ruler of this age, Jesus? Who are you talking about? Aren't you the ruler of this age? In what way are we in an age now that is anticipating but not yet fully experiencing the age that is to come? The age when our prayers and our promises and our hopes become reality. In some very real sense, if you ask me, it looks like um, God is re- inhabiting the world, but not in some kind of triumphalistic uh, manipulation kind of way. That's a, that the world is uh, broken in all sorts of ways. And we see this in our own lives, and we experience it. Uh, whether it's in sickness or whether it's in tragedy or whether it's in natural disaster, we find ourselves up against the hardness of realities of life. And so, yeah, Jesus, come on. What are you waiting on? Can't we just get this done? And Jesus, instead of saying, well, I tell you what, Satan, I think you got a good point there, We can fast-track this thing. Resist that temptation too. And it's not as though when he comes to Palm Sunday, all of his hopes and dreams have been fully realized. I mean, he's fed the multitudes. And they wanted, according to John's gospel, take him by force and make him king. Well, he wasn't up for that. He snuck away at night. They showed up the next morning for breakfast and he said, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, well, we're not up for that. <laughs> if you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow Jesus. And you have to follow the ways of Jesus. So <clears throat> I'm not saying that as followers of Christ or as disciples of Christ, that we should not look to Jesus as an example. I think we should. But I think uh, we need to realize, and this, this, is, uh, this is the most important point I, I want to make, is that our participation, our attempts to kind of follow Jesus are not in themselves salvific. It's not those attempts to follow Jesus or to be like Jesus that saves us. It's the work of Jesus that saves us, right? And being saved, right, now we are... are Invited and expected to follow, to participate, to go with Jesus out in the wilderness, to identify with the rest of humanity that is broken, that has been expelled from the garden. It's an interesting, interesting look at that. I mean, <clears throat> what was the consequence? That the negative consequence, if you ate from the tree, you will surely die. Well, they ate from the tree, and they didn't die, right? It's not like they, they took from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and uh, Eve's there, says Adam is with her, right? So it wasn't like he, she did this on his own, and then he's like, oh, man, now you've messed this up. He's there. He's at the table. It's kind of like when I used to wait, ta- wait on tables. And uh, you have a couple, and you try to tell them the specials. And the guy just sits there looking at his date. And the date sits there looking at you as you explain. And you're like, hello. (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced this waiting on tables or not. But if you're a guy, it's okay to actually look at the server (laughs) and answer. (laughs) You don't have to let your your date do it all for you. So I'm imagining the the serpent there is the server offering the specials of the day. And Adam's like, (laughs) and he's like, well, we'll we'll try that. It's the special, right? It wasn't like they ate it and and just died, right? They don't fall down dead, right? But they do get kind of in the storyline, they get expelled from the garden. The garden had another tree, a very important tree, the only other tree that gets named. And it's the tree of life which suggests that if you eat from it, you would live. And if you could keep eating from it, you would keep on living. But if you're expelled from the garden and you don't have access to it, now what will happen to you? You will die. Which is how I imagine the new creation too. When John the Revelator sees the new creation, he sees a river and he sees the trees of life lining the river which imagines if we can keep on eating from those trees of life, what will happen to us? We will live, right? So it's not that we become immortal. It's that we have everlasting life as a gift of God. Life, life is God's gift. It's not something that we have. We don't start it. We don't end it, right? And we can't keep it going. It is God's gift. And that's, that's what happens to to them as they, kind of, as they kind of get expelled. So here's the thing and this is we'll, we'll close with this the, the movement out into the wilderness by Jesus mimics the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. Not just so that Jesus could be with us in the wilderness but that having gone out in the wilderness and conquered what they weren't able to conquer in the garden it allows us now to return to a garden, right where the, the wilderness is being reclaimed, that, that the, the final hope of a, of a city, of a garden city is what is what we will occupy, that kind of uh, beautiful um, place. The garden that we now get to inhabit because of the work of Christ is no mere return to Eden because we're not uh, naive innocence of children. We now post uh, Christ event, post Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection Ascension, enthronement, and eventual return. Post this event, we come now with kind of Eden Plus. It is value added. We don't only know God as creator, we know God as redeemer. We know God as the one who went out into the wilderness for us. On our behalf and did what we could not do. So as you come and take the elements today, know this, that we're not simply taking communion, we are participating in communion. We are participating in the life, in the mercy, in the love, in the forgiveness, and in the overcoming of temptations that Christ has done for us. And His victory in the wilderness is now our victory as his people, as his followers, as the children of his father, as his joint heirs, as his body. We come, we partake, and we participate in the victory of Christ.